was growing up, and uh, still to this day, but but growing up, there were a, there were a few movie trilogies that I really liked. Kind of for me, were just head and shoulders above uh, others. Um, uh, for me personally, Star Wars was just far and away my favorite. That was uh, that one held held the top spot for sure. Um, but but in in second place on my ranking and, and still very enjoyable was uh, is the Back to the Future trilogy. I don't know if you. Um, I was just thinking the other day just how old those movies are getting now, and it shocks me a little bit. Maybe <laughs> thought that with other movies, but but that that's you remember those movies: Michael J. Fox and Christopher Lloyd. Um, you know, Doc Brown builds this time machine and. Uh, out of a DeLorean car, right? And then together the two characters get into all sorts of uh, trouble traveling through time. Well, I wanted to show you a picture from the second movie. So if we can get that picture up here. Um, And and the reason I want to show you this picture is because I I think it helps us have a good framework for the psalm that we'll get into this morning. You'll you'll see what I mean, hopefully. (laughs) Um, At first glance, this might seem like an ordinary picture, right? Um, But if you've seen the movie, uh, and again, this is from the second movie in the trilogy, if you've seen the movie, you know that this picture represents three distinct time periods in history, three distinct points in history. So the setting for this picture is 1955. And young Biff Tannen up here in the front passenger seat is from 1955. But uh, Michael J. Fox in the back, Marty McFly, he is from the year 1985, of course, because there's a time machine involved. He's here. And then old Biff Tannen in the front, yes, this is supposed to be the same person, right, 60 years apart, old Biff Tannen in the front and the almanac he's holding is from the year 2015. So one picture from one scene in the movie, but three distinct points in history are all being represented and all referenced and interacting all at the same time. Now, a person who's seen the movie can look at that picture and instantly knows what's going on, right? You recognize the different time periods. You can keep it straight in your mind. A person who hasn't seen the movie before would look at that and just say, yeah, it's a picture. It's three guys in a, in a classic car, and that's pretty much all there is to it. So when we think about Psalm 132 this morning, I, I think there's a similar thing taking place uh, to read the psalm without any understanding of the context and and past history of Israel, might lead a person to interpret everything as happening in real time. Um, But it's not. It's not in the psalm. having Having a good handle on the history underneath the words, as well as, so not just past history, but also knowing what's going to take place in the future, it's going to allow us to see these distinct time periods all referenced in one psalm and all interacting together, but giving us the same message. So so before we start going through Psalm 132, I want to give some of that background so that we can see all what's taking place here. And, and the specific background that we need is the history of the Ark of the Covenant and the temple in which the Ark of the Covenant was, was eventually placed. So the Ark of the Covenant is first mentioned all the way back in Exodus chapter 25. 
when, when the Jews arrived at Mount Sinai after departing from Egypt, God not only gave Moses the Ten Commandments, but he gave him other instructions about daily life and worship. And Exodus 25 contains the instructions to build the ark. It was overlaid with gold. It was topped with cherubim. It was to hold the Ten Commandments themselves. Uh, the ark was, was this physical place where God would meet with his people, where he would speak to them. Now, it's also helpful to know that, that kings of nations in the ancient Near East showed their power and showed their authority in different ways. And a real common way that they showed their power was, was through their throne. And when you would go into the king's throne room, what it would typically be is, would be a king on a throne that was physically high and lifted up above everyone else. So you'd literally have to look up to some degree to see the king. And, and because these thrones were so high, and because it was considered improper for the king's feet to be dangling, sitting on this high throne, there would be a footstool where, where his feet would rest. And when you came before the king, if you wanted to depart with your life, you, you would bow yourself before the king and you would get no closer than his footstool. The footstool was quite literally the place where people would speak with and meet with the king. And the Ark of the Covenant in Scripture we see referred to as a footstool. First uh, Chronicles chapter 28 makes that direct connection. The Ark of the Covenant was the footstool where the high priest would come to meet with and speak with God in the temple. It was drawing on that picture of, of all the kings of, of that context, that time period. Now, early in the years of the Jews' exodus from slavery in Egypt, the Ark of the Covenant frequently moved. Um, as the people traveled around the desert, eventually entered into the promised land, the ark came with them, uh, led the way, actually. Um, but even in the midst of all the traveling, God made it clear that there would be a time that would eventually come when he would dwell in a permanent location in which the people would, would come to worship. So uh, listen to his command here. I'll, I'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 12. It's God talking about this time that would come. Deuteronomy 12.1 says, These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you, that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. 
So God clearly stated that a time would come when he would choose a place in the promised land and make that his dwelling place. And because the Ark of the Covenant was the footstool beneath his throne, we know that that means the Ark of the Covenant would have to be there. It would have to be in that place that God would choose. So it might seem logical that as soon as the Jews enter the promised land, they would take the Ark right to that place. Right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? If God has chosen a place, why not just take it right there? Well, first, as we talked about last week, the ark was captured by the Philistines at one point, and so it was taken out of the land of Israel, and it was eventually returned, and when it was returned, it was housed at a place called Kiriath-Jerim. We mentioned that last week also. Um, so that happened. Secondly, the city of Jerusalem was not captured by King David until some 400 years later, after the Israelites first went into the Promised Land. So to even take the Ark straight to Jerusalem, they couldn't do, because they, they hadn't captured Jerusalem yet. And then finally, even though David captured Jerusalem, and he wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem and bring the Ark there, God would not let David do it. And so we can read about what's written in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. It says, When David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go, tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day, but I have gone from tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. And, and so God would go on to tell David that instead of him, it would be his son that would eventually build the temple. But even though God put the brakes on David's plan to build the temple, it didn't stop David from doing what he could to get ready for it. There was lots of preparatory work that David did. And we can, we can read about this in 1 Chronicles chapter 22. It said, David commanded to gather together the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he set stone cutters to prepare dressed stones for building the house of God. David also provided great quantities of iron for nails, for the doors of the gates, for clamps, as well as bronze in quantity, quantities beyond weighing, Cedar timbers without number for the Sidonians and Tyrians brought great quantities of cedar to David. For David said, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So he couldn't build it, but he said, well, I'll do what I can. I'll get it ready. We'll get all the stones ready. We'll get the materials ready. That way, when Solomon's time comes... It's all there, ready to go. And in a few verses down, some of the quantities of the materials are listed. Um, so in, let's see, First Chronicles 22, verse 14, it says, It says, With great pains I have provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver, and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there's so much of it. Timber and stone, too, I have provided. To these you must add... If you're curious about the calculations there, 
100,000 talents of gold is roughly 7.5 million pounds of gold, which if you, uh, uh, gold at today's prices, that'd be $218 billion of gold. And even with inflation, that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot of gold. A uh, million talents of silver is, is roughly 75 million pounds. And with prices today, that's $25 billion of silver. That's crazy. But, so even though David couldn't uh, build the temple to house the ark, he sure did a lot of preparatory work. And he gathered all these things together. And he even sacrificed himself. We're, we're told other places that he donated all he had. He donated 3,000 talents of gold. He donated 7,000 talents of silver. So suffice it to say, David sacrificed for the building of the temple, even though it wasn't him directly who built it or oversaw the building of it. After David's death, of course, his son Solomon became king and, and indeed constructed the temple as God said that he would. The ark was then brought into the temple with great fanfare um, it says there were so many sacrifices given that they couldn't even count them. And so at, at that point in Israel's history, there was finally this permanent dwelling place. A temple had been constructed. The ark had been brought there. God dwelled there. God reigned from there. It had all been looking forward to that point. So that's the background. That's a lot of history about the Ark of the Covenant, right? But that's the background that we really need as we dive into Psalm 132. And I hope you'll see that that background will all pay off. So Psalm 132, your, your Bible might, might uh, make a note of this. It is one of the Psalms of Ascents. So there were 15 of these Psalms of Ascents, and they were Psalms that were traditionally sung or recited by the people as they traveled to Jerusalem and, and, and literally ascended up to Jerusalem because it's up on a hill. And so they would sing these songs, especially during the annual pilgrimage feasts. It's a song of ascents. And the common belief is that these 15 psalms were compiled after the exile. So when we think about Israel's history, we, we kind of stopped with the building of the temple, the ark being brought into it at the time of Solomon. Well, eventually the people wandered, the Babylonians came in, the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the people were taken to Babylon uh, into exile, they returned home to Jerusalem 70 years later, and they rebuilt the temple. So the immediate context of these words in Psalm 132 is the post-exilic Israelites, the people that have come back from Babylon, traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the rebuilt temple. But just like with that picture from Back to the Future, this context is, is merged with other points in history. So it's not just that point that we need to be aware of as we read this psalm. The first 10 verses of, psalm, of this psalm look back to that history that we just talked about. So look with me at the, at the first verses of Psalm 132. Again, this is looking back to David's time. It says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. 
So as the Jews are traveling to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, they're singing this song that looks back to the first temple, to the one that David built. And, and really what they're focused on is David's attitude toward that first temple. David was, was so intent on constructing the temple for the ark that he vowed not to sleep. I mean, that, that's serious, right? To say, I am not going to lay down my head. And he, and he said it, we read earlier, like, he's like, I've got a palace, I've got a house to live in, but the ark is just sitting there in a tent. I'm not going to lay my head down until we fix that, until we build the temple. So we can see his attitude and his dedication to this. And I think that tells us a couple things. Uh, first, he's, he's so honored, he's, he so honored God that, that he himself would sacrifice and suffer in order to give God the honor that's due his name. He's saying, you know, your footstool, the Ark of the Covenant, it should not be in a tent. It needs to be in a grand, magnificent building, hundreds of billions of dollars of gold, right? I mean, he's, he's saying, God, th- this is the honor that you deserve. And, and he's willing to sacrifice in order to see that honor given to God. So we see that in David. Uh, and then secondly, David took seriously that call from God in Deuteronomy that we read that called the people to come to the place God would choose to worship him. David wanted to see that place constructed so that all the people could come gather and not just the building would honor God, but the people gathering there would give that honor to God as well. I think, I think those, those worshipers traveling to Jerusalem are, are, are reflecting on that. They're reflecting on David's attitude, the honor that David wanted to give to God through this temple. And then in verses 6 through 10, it's still looking back in history, but it shifts from David's time to Solomon's time. So verse 6 says this, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. So verse 6, when it says, we found it in the fields of J.R. Um, J.R. is a shortened alternative name for Kiriath-Jerim that we talked earlier. When the ark came back from the Philistines and they housed it there, Kiriath-Jerim means the city of forests. And J.R. is the singular word for forest. So they're, they're saying, ah, oh, we've, we've found the ark in this location where it was. I mean, they knew it was there, but it's this, ah, oh, we found it. And now it's time to bring it back and, and uh, bring it to Jerusalem, not back, but bring it to Jerusalem for the first time. And verse 7 then is, is the response of the people to that relocation. Let's go. Let's go to the place that God has chosen to dwell. Let's go worship him there. Worship at his footstool now that the ark has been brought to Jerusalem. And then verse 8 is, is a phrase that is connected with the movement of, our, of the ark throughout the history of Israel. Um, we see specifically in Numbers chapter 10, we're told that whenever the ark would set out in front of the nation, Moses would say, Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Let your enemies be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. And here we have it again in verse 8 
of this psalm. Arise, O Lord, this connection back to the ark. It's come to Jerusalem. And then even, even over and above that, when the ark was first brought to the temple by Solomon, that, that day that they finally brought it there, listen to the words that Solomon spoke as the ark came. This is from Second Chronicles chapter 6. Just see if this sounds familiar. Solomon said this, And now arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. It's the same quote here. I mean, it, it was first at the construction of the original temple when the ark came. And Psalm 132 is looking back to that time. The ark has arrived. The people are coming to worship. The exiles who've come back are reflecting on that. They're going to worship at the temple as well. So it's clear in all of this that as these people are journeying toward Jerusalem, that they're singing this song they're remembering the great promises of God. They're remembering the great blessing of being able to come to this place to worship God, to give him honor, to, to be at his footstool, as it were. And, and even though so much has transpired that saw the city destroyed and the temple destroyed and, and the people taken into exile and come back, even, even though all that has transpired, they're, they're still, they're reflecting on the fact that God is showing himself to be true to his promises. Because the temple had been rebuilt, they're able to come worship him once again like their ancestors had done. And they're, they're, they're rejoicing in that as they approach the city. But to only hear those promises as physical in nature and to only view them in light of what took place in the time of David is to miss the even greater and deeper meaning to all of this. Because just like that picture from Back to the Future, it wasn't just looking to the past, this looks ahead as well. And in verse 11 of Psalm 132, God responds, and while the people are looking back, God is looking forward. So look at what God says when he responds in verse 11. It says, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. Her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So in this response from God, God's he first reaffirmed his covenant with David and David's sons. You know, if they would be faithful to the covenant, God would indeed allow them to reign forever from the throne. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? I mean, that's wonderful. 
The problem is, who can keep God's covenant perfectly forever, <laughs> right? I mean, the, the, the post-exilic Jews who've come out of exile in Babylon can very clearly look back upon history and see plenty of examples of kings, of sons of David, who have not kept God's promise, who have, or who have not kept God's covenant, excuse me. They've not been faithful to what God has called them to. You can argue that that was a primary reason the people drifted from God, rebelled against God, and, and were sent into exile. The kings led them there, really. But, but rather than scrap that covenant because the sons of David weren't faithful and hadn't kept the covenant, God remained faithful to it. And God, we know then, sent his son, born of Mary, from the line of King David, fully God, fully human, and perfectly kept the covenant. And as a result, then sits on his throne forever. I mean, Jesus is that horn that verse 17 talks about, this horn that sprouted from David's stump that draws on this imagery of, of the Messiah from the book of Isaiah. So the sons of David who were fully human and not fully God were not able to uphold that covenant, but the one who was fully God and fully human, of course, did keep it. So even though all those other sons in David's line had failed and lost the throne of Jerusalem for a time, Jesus succeeded, and, and he reigns from that throne forever. I mean, verse 14 says it's his, it's his resting place forever. He will dwell there as he desires to. I mean, uh, how great that is, right? That God made a way. God made a way. He sent his son who now reigns from the throne forever. But perhaps we look at the city of Jerusalem, the place that God has chosen to put his throne to reign from, and we wonder what happened. I mean, really, look at Jerusalem today, not just figuratively, but look at Jerusalem today. What happened there? I mean, one, didn't Jesus ascend back into heaven? I mean, how can he be reigning from Zion, another name for Jerusalem, if he's in heaven? How can he be dwelling in Jerusalem if he's in heaven? Um, and even if Jesus wasn't physically in heaven right now, even if he was physically here on earth, what does it mean that there's no physical temple in Jerusalem? I mean, how is, how, if this is looking ahead to the future, how is it being fulfilled in light of that reality? Well, I would encourage you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews talks specifically about this. He, he reveals to us that God is indeed reigning from Zion. But what we have to know is that Mount Zion is more than just a physical place. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 says this, and he starts by looking back. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of those uh, and, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, "I tremble with fear." So, so he, the writer of Hebrews here is going back, even before the temple, he's going back to Mount Sinai. 
He's going back to that physical mountain, that place where God was dwelling for a short time and met with the people. And, and he's, he's using physical words, right? A place that can be touched, blazing fire, a physical sound, a physical voice. If you touch the mountain, you'll be stoned. So, so he's talking about a physical place there. He's setting that stage. But then he goes ahead and look what he says in verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So the dwelling place of God... The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, is not a place, but a people. That's how it's described here in Hebrews 12. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's people. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That's people. That's people. The city of the living God in which God dwells is his people. His church his people that have been sprinkled by the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus, as, as the writer of Hebrews talks about there. Paul states that in 1 Corinthians 3. He says that we are God's temple. God's spirit dwells within us, within you, within me. So, so when God says in Psalm 132 that he desires his dwelling place, he's talking about you and me. That's where God desires to dwell. He, he doesn't dwell within us because he can't find a better place, because he can't afford something better. I mean, that's not it at all. He dwells within us because that's what he desires to do. We are his resting place forever. That's what the end of Psalm 132 is looking forward to, that dwelling forever. And, and it's it's partially fulfilled now, right? We gather here today, and God is dwelling with us. He is present with us today. Ultimately, this will be fulfilled on the new earth, right? The, the, the picture in Hebrews 12 matches perfectly with what John saw and recorded for us at the end of Revelation. Um, Jim already read the first four verses of Revelation 21, it talks about the new heaven and the new earth, and it talks about a holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. But how's that city described? You remember? It says, I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who's the bride in Scripture? It's God's people, right? So when John sees this city, this dwelling place of God, it's the bride. It's the bride that comes down. And, and you know, the, the, uh, in case we aren't quite convinced by those first few verses, he goes on further down in chapter 21. Uh, verse 9, it says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And when, he get, when he's going to show him the bride, what does he do? He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. So, 
So at the end of all things, maybe better described as the beginning of new things on the new earth, God will, will dwell fully and completely with his people, with his bride forever. That is what is coming. That will be his resting place forever. That is what he has desired, using the words of Psalm 132. That is what God's what God desires. It's not that God likes the physical city of Jerusalem better than anywhere else on earth, and so he's chosen to dwell there for all eternity. That's not what he desires. What he truly desires is his bride, you and me. That's what he desires. So, so just, like, just like the church isn't a physical building, but it's a people, the new Jerusalem isn't a physical city, it's a people. It's a bride. Now, there's a physical nature to it. Don't get me wrong, because it's his bride. I mean, we'll have our new glorified physical bodies. So there's a physical aspect to it, but it's a people. That's, that's where God desires and will dwell for all eternity. So even though, if we go back to those uh, those post-exilic Jews who've come out of Babylon, they're going up to Jerusalem to see the rebuilt temple, thinking this is great, the temple's been rebuilt, we can go worship God there. What God is saying is, let's look ahead to the ultimate dwelling place, the ultimate temple, which will not be this physical place here, but it's the bride, it's the people of God. Now, as we think about communion this morning, uh, before we get to that, let, let's just pause just a moment and consider the implications of, of Psalm 132. All those who've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus are part of his bride. It, it's such a wonderful blessing. God desires his bride. God is jealous for his bride so much so that, that he will dwell with her for all eternity. I think a question that, that I find myself asking myself is, what does that mean for how I treat his bride, how I treat others who are part of his bride? You know, when, uh, when we think about the ways we've maybe talked about or treated other members of the bride, would we have dared to do that if the groom was standing right there physically? <laughs> I mean, that's a sobering thought when I think about that. Like, ooh, I don't think I would. I don't. I think I would act differently at times if I knew that the groom was standing right there. You know, if if I were to belittle or attack or 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 demean God's bride, wouldn't I expect Him to respond to me with a holy jealousy that really should make me tremble? But this is His bride. This is his bride, and, and, and we don't have to agree with everything that the bride does. We don't have to agree with everything that the bride believes all the time, but we must honor the bride. We must. We must honor the bride, and, and I think we have to recognize that together we're all part of that bride, which, which God will dwell with for all eternity. It's true of us here. It's true of the bride around the world. It's not just us. The bride is much, much bigger than Eureka Bible Church. Uh, you know, when, when we finally, when we get to the new earth and we finally observe the full expression of the bride of Christ, 
my hunch is that she'll be a little more diverse than I, than I maybe think she's going to be. Um, but for all the diversity, there will be one definite commonality, and, and that's what is in front of us this morning, represented by what's on the table. All right, every person in the bride will be clothed with salvation that was given to them because of the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what ties the entire bride together across all of the world now and across all of history of the world. Every person in the bride is going to be wearing that fine linen that's bright and pure, and, and it is so because it's washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's what, that's what we will all have in common with one another. So the bread and the juice on the table this morning it's a reminder of that. It's a reminder of that, that one thing which makes us part of the bride of Christ. It's his sacrifice for our sins. And because of that, we get to dwell with God for eternity. I mean, whew, what, a, what a blessing. What a blessing that's going to be for us. Already is, right? He's already dwelling in our midst, but especially when we get to that new earth. So the elders are going to come forward and, um, and serve the elements to you. I, just by way of reminder, uh, if you're a part of Jesus' bride this morning, then, then please participate with us in, in taking communion. Um, if you're not a part of the bride and you don't desire to be a part of the bride, then just, just let the elements pass. Um, uh, if you're not a part of the bride, but you desire to be, you, you, you want to be a part of that bride, you desire to accept Jesus as the only one that can, can uh, cleanse your sins and give you that fine, bright, pure linen, then tell Jesus that this morning and, and participate in communion as, as, a, as a first act as a part of the bride. But this is, this is uh, the picture of God's love for us, God's love for his bride, that he would offer himself fully on the cross. And so let's be sure to keep that in mind as we partake together this morning.